Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Owen Jones. Welcome to the podcast. Today, scenes of violence in Northern Ireland streets have raised the question, is the peace process under threat exactly 23 years since the Good Friday Agreement was signed, ending a conflict, the troubles which had taken the lives of over three and a half thousand people? Today we'll be looking at exactly what is going on. Is this all about Brexit and the Northern Ireland Protocol, which establishes a de facto border down the Irish Sea? Is this about anger over Sinn Féin figures who, eight months ago, attended the funeral of Bobby Story, one of their own, allegedly breaking social distancing rules? Is this about unionist leaders, not least the DUP, whipping up anger and resentment in their own communities? How much is this about disaffection in communities with high levels of deprivation, blighted by social injustice? And is this about other factors too? We're going to be talking to a range of voices, a Republican, a loyalist, someone who works on a non-sectarian basis with all communities in the labour movement. And to begin with, we talk to writer and solicitor Sarah Creighton, and we talk, first of all, about whether this is all really about Brexit. When people say this is just about Brexit, what would you say? No. <laughs> I mean, obviously, um, Brexit is part of this. And certainly, you know, some some of the reason for the violence at the moment is because people are very angry and they're very angry with the Northern Ireland Protocol. But what I would say to that is a lot of people who are angry are also Brexiteers. So Brexit itself is not, it is the problem. But if you, you take Brexit out of the equation, that doesn't solve the problem. Um, so what I would say to people is, in addition to this being about the protocol, this is also about policing in Northern Ireland. Um, so for some people who are very angry at the moment, not necessarily people that are rioting, and I'll come on to that in a wee minute, but the people that are very angry at the moment, they are angry about the PSNI. Um, there was a funeral last year for a Republican called Bobby Story. It was seen to be in breach of the COVID regulations and members of Sinn Féin went to that funeral um, and people were very angry about that. And that wasn't just a unionist uh, Republican thing. That was just across the community. Everybody was very angry. Um, but the decision um, of the PPS not to prosecute in that case has angered people. Um, and that is going on in the background. And for some people, that, that is a reason why they feel quite angry at this moment in time. But uh, apart from that as well, um, there's a real um, frustration with devolution and how that has been handled. Um, some, of the, some of the loyalists that I have spoken to, and you might hear this later on, say that they're frustrated with the Good Friday Agreement itself, um, which rightly or wrongly, I do think they are wrong, but that feeling is out there. Um, that is an element of this as well. But underlining these issues as well is um, the paramilitaries. And they very much are, in my view, and I think it's the view of, of, of journalists and, and the police in Northern Ireland, that they are orchestrating this, that they are behind this, that they are egging young people out onto the streets to try and do this. And I think underlining that, um, point is there's a reason why these paramilitaries have such a grip 
over certain communities within Northern Ireland and a lot of that is to do with social social deprivation and socioeconomic issues and um, the paramilitaries have a lot of control within their communities um the majority of the do not support them the majority of people in Northern Ireland do not support them or support violence in any way but they have a real grip on communities for for various reasons for historical reasons for economic reasons and one of the reasons why so many young people sometimes feel like they, they have to go out and do this or they want to go out and do this it's not only just because of recreational riding but because um the communities that they are raised in on, on the issues that they are faced with you know um i'm sure that the, the people that you're going to speak to are going to tell you this as well about the levels of poverty within those communities about the lack of opportunities and you know going back to my point about the good friday agreement for some people you know they look back 23 years and they think well i'm not any better off and that the, the peace dividend as it as it's called has gone to people within the middle class community within northern ireland so this isn't just about brexit and um, there are so many different strands to this Arlene Foster, the leader of the Democratic Unionist Party, sent a tweet, which has become quite notorious, which was in response yeah. to the attack on, on the bus, which condemned violence, mm -hmm. but, but put it in the context, as you say, of the failure to prosecute uh, Sinn Féin leaders as the real mm -hmm. criminality. I mean, what, what, what is the role of, of the Democratic Unionist Party and the unionist leadership in general in what's happened over the last few days in terms of the anger which which exists but it's mm -hmm. been stoked of course as well i think they've got a significant role to play in this now obviously look you know the dup don't support violence and neither do any of the other unionist political parties but i think that their words um when it has come to discussing issues like the bobby story funeral for instance there's a lot of talk about you know that Sinn Féin rule the roost you know that Sinn Féin are able to get away with things and that's just not true. Um, you know, policing is not merely confined to issues with policing, rather, are not merely just confined to the unionist community. The Nationalists and Republicans are also annoyed with the police and the black community in Northern Ireland was very annoyed with the PSN and how they treated the Black Lives Matter protests last year. So this talk of two-tier policing, and, and no doubt, you know, policing is an issue, and no doubt policing is not consistent across communities in Northern Ireland, and that is an issue, and that's a legitimate concern to boil this down to just being about orange and green is not accurate and obviously you know, people do listen to the unionist politicians on what they say and equally with the northern Ireland protocol and i mean look you know i voted remain and like the protocol is annoying for a lot of people i think that is genuine and they're frustrated about it but i do think that unionist politicians have been unrealistic with people um in how they are approaching this subject they're telling them that you know we can just get rid of the protocol everything's going to be fine that's it that's all we really need to do when really you know the protocol is here to stay it's going to be very difficult to get rid of um there are practical solutions that could be put forward to actually mitigate the irc border but they, they aren't going for it and, and actually ironically those solutions are being put forward by people who are not being unionists at this point of time though obviously there are some unionists um, who are agreeing with the other position but at the very top um, the political parties are not pushing that so so i think they have played a role in this and also just in general that the unionist political parties and republican parties as well um have backed economic measures in this country which have made um the lives of people in this country much worse so when we go back to what i was talking about you know social deprivation and and you know poverty within communities you know universal credit things like that you know tory economic policies they they were backed by people within the dup and also within people and um, within republicans and nationalism within republicanism and nationalism as well so they have a huge role to play in this and i think um there's a huge vacuum of leadership 
within unionism at this point in time and I think another issue which is a factor here is that a lot of people who are very angry right now not necessarily the people who are running but um are very angry with the DP and they feel alienated from their political leaders they do not feel like they're being represented <clears throat> excuse me at this point in time and um now whether that will that will show in the election next year I, I don't think so but but the anger is out there and they blame the DUP and a lot of people are saying you, you we voted for Brexit you told us it would be that you told us that this would happen it hasn't happened um what the solution is to that I don't know so the the vacuum of leadership the lack of leadership the ineffectual the ineffectual leadership that we have is hugely significant right now Finally, how how serious do you think things could get? Obviously, the Good Friday Agreement now has been in place for the anniversaries coming up for 23 mm-hmm. years, which ended the Troubles, which, of course, killed 3,500 people mm-hmm. or so in, in over, over that period. I mean, in your recent Guardian article, in terms of that toxic breed you're speaking about, you know, half of Northern Ireland's most deprived areas in Belfast, uh, people on trapped on social housing waiting lists. That's got worse. Yeah. You've got the social element. You've got the Northern mm-hmm. Ireland Protocol, which is regarded as anathema to mm-hmm. unionism because of the the border established yeah. essentially in the Irish Sea between mm-hmm. the North and and the mainland. And then uh, the role of the unionist leaderships and so on. Mm-hmm. The the anger which exists, as you say, over uh, Sinn Fein within certain communities. Is this going to escalate? Is it possible to de-escalate? Uh, how serious could it get? And and what are the prospects for things simmering? Yeah, you know, if you'd asked me two or three weeks ago, um, I would have not been as worried as I am now. Um, you know, the majority of loyalist people do not back paramilitaries. They aren't in favour of violence. That's always been the case. And I think, you know, we do need to make a distinction between the people that are rioting and just ordinary loyalist people who do not support this. But um, the people I talk to, and admittedly, you know, I don't talk to as many people as other people would, but they are worried. Um, and I think the worry is that the old guard, as they say, really have no control over a new generation of paramilitaries who aren't really willing to listen, who are quite keen to get in on the past and maybe quite jealous of the past. There's been a lot of concern about radicalization of young people, not just within Lotus communities, but within Republican communities as well. Um, so I am concerned, um, just on the basis of what I've been told from other people. Um, and I think if something does not happen quickly, this could escalate. Now, how it will escalate, I don't know. Um, I think people are very angry. My concern is that where are they going to direct that anger? Is it going to be directed at the British government? I don't think so. Where is that going to go? Uh, my concern is that that is going to go possibly to the Irish government in the south or possibly being directed at nationalists and Republicans within Northern Ireland which would just be awful because, you know, the protocol was signed by the by the British government and the European Union, but at the end of the day, the best way to solve these issues is to talk to people and do things peacefully um, or peacefully protest, lobby, do everything like that. Um, we should not be blaming our neighbours, um, other people within our community, nationalists and Republicans, for what is happening. They did not want this in the first place. Um, there's been a lot of spin that they did, but they didn't. So I am worried, but, you know, we've been through worse. You know, um, when Lara McKee was, was shot... Two years ago, I was really, really worried, um, but we got through that. We are, we're here now. Obviously, the situation has changed significantly, but I would, I'm not optimistic at this point that this is going to get better. But obviously, events will take their course. Um, we don't know what's going to happen. Um, I think this this has wakened up the unionist leadership to the gravity of the situation and this level of anger that has been bubbling for so long. 
Um, but I think we do need to be very careful. And I think, um, go back to a point about leadership, I think it is needed to try and calm the situation, bring the rhetoric down, <clears throat> excuse me. And I think they need to be honest with people and give them proper solutions, not just empty slogans and anger and take to the streets because this unionism has done this over and over again. It has done it for years and years and it never wins. It never it never is, is successful. So I'm not exactly been optimistic or smiley at the moment, but I, I think it's just from what I'm hearing from other people, I am a bit, I, I'm ominous about the future at this point in time. Julianne Cor Johnston is a loyalist politician. She used to be a member of the Belfast City Council, a councillor on there on behalf of the Progressive Unionist Party. She's now a commentator. She's involved very much in loyalist communities. And I talked to her about what's really going on on the ground. Yeah, there's a combination of issues there on um, that have led led to the present day events, and there, there's four things, and I'll touch on each of them basically um, in, in basic detail. One was the Bobby Story funeral. Bobby Story was a senior Republican who passed away last year, um, and at that time, the regulations that have been set by the government weren't permitting any more than thirty at a funeral. Um, however, large numbers. I don't know if you or your viewers, listeners have um, have seen the images of that um, Republican funeral. It was quite a large number of people on the streets in the midst of this pandemic. And that's not a green orange or green or orange issue. We call things green and orange here in Northern Ireland. If you're orange, you're unionist and loyalist. If you're green, you're from the CNR community. Um, it's a term we've always used here, green and orange. So it's not really seen as a green and orange issue. It obviously caused significant problems because people had loved ones that were in nursing homes and watching their families pass away through a glass uh, glass window. With people that were in hospitals that were passing away or struggling um, with COVID-19 and other illnesses, life-limiting or life-taking illnesses. Um, and unfortunately, those people weren't able to give the send-off to their families that they deserve. And I don't know about you, Owen, but here in Northern Ireland, Part of our healing process and our recovery process is having that funeral. Within a day or two of the person's death, we bring them home and they come home to our homes. And we spend time over the coffin, talking with our families and friends, sharing memories. It's a very precious time for families to reconnect, but connect about that person, celebrate their lives and grieve together. And people were robbed of that during this pandemic. So, of course, there was outrage at the time. The police of Northern Ireland had made a referral then to the Public Prosecution Service um, recommending prosecution um, because of these COVID breaches. Just recently there, the PPS, our Public Prosecution Service, came out and said that they weren't prosecuting. Um, And of course, this caused a stir in Northern Ireland, not just within Green and Orange, but on the orange side, on the Protestant unionist and loyalist side, particularly because there's been this historical perception that any nationalist Republican from that that community, from the Republican background, um, are treated with kid gloves and have special dispensation when it comes to the law. So whilst that is an allegation, when instances like this happened, it obviously exacerbates that feeling. Um, I don't think that that was the catalyst for these protests that have turned violent. But I do believe they play a, a significant role in it. One of the largest reasons I believe that we're seeing feet on the streets at this point in time is because of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, we have a border. We were told back in 2018 and right through till 2020, 
all of the the kind of assessments that were being carried out and the politi political deputations that were being made to each other at multi-party talks and also to the European Union was that the risk um, of returning to violence was significantly high in the event that there was a border on the island of Ireland. And of mm -hmm. course, now this Northern Ireland Protocol has put a border on the island of Ireland, not between the north and the south, but on the outside of Northern Ireland. And so it's Northern Ireland that has been, if you like, carved off from GB. It's its main trading, um, its main trade. What's happened there now is that there's real difficulties for our lorries that are attempting to come back into Northern Ireland. Um, we find that the businesses in GB, who we depend upon an awful lot in terms of our components and things like that for our own trade, um, we find that there has been a significant hike in price and obviously friction is cost. So it's put that the cost of things up. And of course, that rolls down onto the consumer. It's become unaffordable for those people who in my community um, and of course, across all communities here in Northern Ireland, green and orange, working class communities that are struggling to make ends meet, that are living below the breadline. The prices become so unaffordable. And in some cases, Owen, we have businesses that have stopped trading with Northern Ireland altogether simply because of the hassle and the cost involved to trade with us. Um, and that's unacceptable. It's unacceptable for businesses. It's unacceptable for everyone in Northern Ireland in terms of the wider society. But where it's most unpalatable for the unionist community is that without its consent, it has been cut off, if you'd like, from the rest of the United Kingdom. There's a number of people, Owen, that would measure Northern Ireland's strength within the union, within the United Kingdom, based on the socioeconomic wealth of its citizens. And anything that targets or prohibits prosperity and growth or causes issues or, co or causes a, 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 for those unmet need, those issues of unmet need to be exacerbated um, is a threat. And there is that element um, of frustration there. But one of the ones that's one of the key issues I think that's not really spoke about is the, the growing discontent between political unionism and its base. The base, the PUL community feels that the DUP lied to them, that they riled them up prior to the 2019 general election. Obviously, then the the election um, with Theresa May resigning. Um, and there is a general feeling that they walked them to the top of the hill, got them riled up, got them angry and got the vote out in a way that could maximise their votes. Obviously, that didn't come to fruition. DUP lost seats. When that happened, instead of coming back and reassuring those communities that they had met in, they had called public meetings or were involved in public meetings, touring the country, trying to encourage people, unionist people, to come out and vote for them. Um, that kind of doffen the cap politics, trusting those who are better bred, better off socially, better off financially, better educated. Um, and the community followed that. And since they've been abandoned. Um, <sighs> Boris Johnson says there is a border, there isn't a border, you'll have unfettered access, you don't have unfettered access. Uh, you know, DUP saying, oh, this could be a golden opportunity and then the next hand, no, we voted against this. It's disastrous for the union. It's disastrous for Northern Ireland. You just The mood changes day to day, but the one consistent here is the working class communities on the ground. They feel disenfranchised and feel isolated um, from that. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I mean... Uh... Because obviously back, if we went back to the late 60s, early 70s, you got that rupture in unionism as lots of working class unions broke increasingly with the Ulster unionists who were very aristocratic, uh, very conservative elite. Um, and you had uh, the, uh, the the great strike of Protestant workers, was it 74, 1974? Yeah. Uh, so you've got those ruptures obviously go back a long way. To what degree, what extent do you think there's a, is there a similar rupture going on at the moment with the Democratic? Absolutely. Well, and I think we can't overlook that. I think the events then and the relevance that they have to present day events can't be ignored or overlooked. You know, in that historical context, the Sunning Deal Agreement, which is what the strike was ultimately about, mm-hmm. was basically giving, and I hate to say this because they are our neighbours, but it was effectively given a foreign government a role in the governance of Northern Ireland. And that was without the consent of the people. And that caused significant frustrations and ultimately resulted in the Ulster Council strike or the workers' strike. And I hate using that example. I hate talking about that specifically because there was so much needless loss of life. And the protest, to even call it a protest, is just, you know, there, there was real two weeks of suffering there for people, you know, lack of food, lack of heating, uh, the water supplies, you know, it was a harrowing experience, although I'm much too young to have lived it, but my parents and my grandparents lived through it. Um, So if you take that 1974, um, obviously those acts of violence, as much as violence can never be justified, it can be explained. But at that time, violence was seen as a mechanism for achieving your goals. And on that occasion, they did. They succeeded. Unionism succeeded in demolishing the uh, Sunning Deal Agreement and further collapsing the what was seen to be a power-sharing government at that time. But of course, as history would have it, um, the Conservative government, um, Maggie Thatcher, in, it, in what would be described within the unionist community as a patriotic act of di- uh, dismemberment, um, where she... Uh, crafted and negotiated the Anglo-Irish Agreement, giving Ireland a role in the governments of Northern Ireland. Of course, unionism kicked up at that stage, perhaps more aggressively than what it had done before. And it didn't on this occasion. The goal-achieving ambitions that they have failed and they didn't succeed. So after years of violence again, Owen, it came back then to 1998. Now, I was born at this stage, but I wasn't old enough to vote. I think I was eight or ten. Mm-hmm. I can't mind. I was a young a young pup. So I would call myself the peace baby generation. Um, but we came to this landmark agreement 
that would see peace in Northern Ireland, but in particular, and I have it here because I don't want to misrepresent the, the, the deal, but it basically characterised a peaceful commitment to exclusively democratic and peaceful means of resolving differences on political issues and opposition to any use or threat of force by others for any political purpose. So that was that's actually written in the text of the Good Friday Agreement, and it's in the declaration of support by both the British and the Irish governments. Now, the feeling here is that loyalism signed up to that because, let's be honest, without anybody around the table at the time of the Good Friday Agreement, and that includes loyalists, it would never have been possible. People rolled up their sleeves, made sacrifices, and made big commitments um, so that their children and our children could live more fuller and fuller lives and have a better quality of life, um, suppose in peace and in harmony. Um, but the very text of that agreement, there's a strong feeling on the ground within unionism and loyalism that both the British and the Irish governments have contravened those standards, that there was the talk up of violence, that violence could have occurred. And rather than coming around the table through democratic and peaceful means, engaging on that principle of consent with the people of Northern Ireland, of course, the Irish government cozied with the European government and the DUP cozied up to the Tories. And let's be quite honest, they don't really care for Northern Ireland. I have no love for the Tories. Um, and so, and, and the feeling's obviously mutual, as we can see. Mm. Um, so yes, there is a feeling that that agreement has been abandoned and that was something that took a lot more for people. I mean, it's it, it's not easy. I can't say that it's easy to go out and throw a petrol bomb. It's easy to go out and, you know, do a volley of shots. <laughs> of course, I certainly wouldn't do it. You know, it certainly wouldn't be something I would want to do. And I am of that pro-peace, anti-violence generation um, and remain committed to it. But I suppose for a lot of those loyalists that were involved at that time, it was a lot harder for them to get round the table and use their voice as a weapon than it was to perhaps go out and, and riot in the streets with the police or with the nationalist community. Yeah. So you can't, we can't underestimate the task that was taken at that time. And I think we're now at a stage, on where honey-coated words of condemnation or fluffy words of calling for peace and stability just aren't going to cut it anymore. I think that our political leaders and our the, the, the co-guarantors of the Good Friday Agreement, both the British and the Irish government, need to treat this as the political crisis that it is and intervene now. And by that, I'd heard Keir Starmer earlier today calling for um, a convention of sorts, like a multi-party convention, um, to basically nip this in the bud now and have these meaningful conversations. But I don't think anything is going to change unless there is a change of tack between the EU and the UK looking at the societal and structural tensions and issues that have come from the Northern Ireland Protocol. Whether that means it goes, that's certainly what the, what the PUL community want or at least are advocating for at this stage. But whether that will actually happen is another thing. If it can't happen, there's absolutely there must must be some mitigations against the worst impacts of this. I mean, finally, that's what I was going to ask you. How serious is this to the Good Friday peace agreement, which is nearly its 23rd anniversary now and obviously did produce that, yes. that peace which ended the, the terrible loss of life that was seen during the Troubles, given it seems very unlikely the protocol could ever go because of the nature of the Brexit deal that Boris Johnson negotiated. And given as well, 
you know, I mean, in 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 Northern Ireland, in Belfast in particular, the, the levels of deprivation and, and social dislocation that you know far better than than myself, which always helps exacerbate other tensions and frustrations. And given the role of the of the DUP, maybe as you see it, what what how serious a threat is this? Is it possible to walk it back, and how bad could things get? Um, oh gosh, it really is something that I try not to think about. I try and keep, I suppose, hopeful and, and hold a degree of faith that those those guardians will come forward and will exercise leadership and demonstrate it where it's absent. Um, oh, and yesterday evening, um, the area that, that I call home, North Belfast, erupted in violence that I haven't witnessed or seen in my lifetime. Um, there was bus set on fire. There was hand-to-hand -hand combat through a peace gate that had been broken. There was a, a journalist, a photojournalist, attacked by members of my own community. Um, for me, though, there's a population of 18,000 in that particular area, in that constituency. And there was approximately 500 odd, so that were on the ground. So 17,500 people stayed at home. They don't want violence and it isn't representative of them, but that shouldn't be confused as contentment because people are not content with the arrangements that have been made and they're most unhappy. And of course, as it was in 1998, the message for me remains the same, that the only way that you can bring societal change in this place is breaking away from the constitutional politics and show strength that we see in every election here and vote for socioeconomic change. Um, convincing people that it is safe to do that is another thing um i want to hope that wiser heads will prevail and i hope i hope that our politicians have a change of heart here in the next few days and realize that their words matter yes mm. but their actions mean even more um and that they all have a role to play in trying to dissuade people from violence, but also making an outcome for Northern Ireland that will be prosperous, but most importantly, peaceful. Um, and I'm not sure, I mean, we've, we've bounced back in the past, but I'm not sure that it's take, being taken as seriously as it is. And that concerns me that people will be feeling that they're not being heard in a way they ought to. Um, how serious is it at this point in time? Will the Loyalist Communities Council, which is a, it's a legitimate organisation um, that was founded to on, on the back of Axe combatants and um, people who were formerly engaged in paramilitaries activities and they're transitioning into politics and trying to encourage peace within the area. Mm -hmm. um, and quite recently there, they come out withdrawing support for the Good Friday Agreement. And these are people who would have been around the table and who secured that agreement in 1998. Mm -hmm. um, so where that discontentment and is growing, there becomes a greater vacuum. Mm -hmm. um, what I'm concerned about is that there's people on the ground and beyond a no illusion, there are people on the ground working ridiculously hard to make sure and keep people away from violence so that it's not representative, try and encourage people to remain peaceful, and they always have and they always will. The problem is, is that effort isn't being met in the same way by our politicians. 
Chris Hazard is the Sinn Féin MP for South Down. He was elected back in 2017. And I wanted to talk to him about his perspective about what's actually happening. Well, well, I suppose the first thing to say is, you know, those involved in the disturbances have provided several reasons why. Um, And indeed, many more of the commentators around who have been talking on media over the last few days have provided many more. I think but we have to caveat everything we say that no matter what the rationale is, there's no justification whatsoever for, you know, firebombing a bus, for you know, attempted murder on public service workers, um, you know, for terrifying people in their own homes. Um, what we're seeing here is a contrived crisis, I think, within unionism. Uh, the reasons are multi-causal. Um, they run deep. Uh, I think, you know, political unionism, um, the very notion of Ulster unionism as a political project, um, as a supremacist political project, is is in the middle of a massive identity crisis. I think there are threads that run similar to what we're seeing in the American Midwest and the former industrialized heartlands of Northern England and perhaps even the Welsh Valleys, um, you know, left behind communities. And unfortunately, unionist politicians over the last decade or more have not involved themselves in the socioeconomic um, discussions and work programs that needed to be involved to bring everybody along. Instead, they have chosen identity politics. Uh, I think Brexit has been a disastrous catalyst uh, uh, in the middle of all of that. And then a decade of Tory um, administrations uh, and their tinkering with the political um, progress here in the North has been uh, very detrimental. Like we, we shouldn't forget, you know, we had Theresa Villiers, a Tory Secretary of State, you know, canvas with the DUP on the streets of, of Belfast. You know, that's not the type of impartiality that people come to expect um, from a British government for a guarantor of the the Good Friday Agreement. Um, And I think we're in that type of crisis. So unionism is leaderless um, at the minute. It's increasingly erratic and it's lurching from one crisis to another. And from the DUP's point of view, you know, that's been about shifting attention from what has been a disastrous Brexit policy, you know. Um, And I think we've seen that from the start of this year. They have lurched from one position to the next each time getting that little bit more regressive and extreme. And I think to all extent and purposes, they're being led by the nose now by the extremist TUV. You know, it's hard to imagine that there's a party to the right of the DUP on these matters, but, you know, they are being led by the nose now by the by the TUV and Jim Allister when it comes to these. And unfortunately, I don't see any quick solution to, to that crisis. As I said, it runs deep. I wish they had followed the advice of a former leader, Peter Robinson, in recent years, you know, when he asked unionists to consider a much more cosmopolitan, much more progressive and 21st century brand of unionism to move forward and that identity politics would be a zero-sum game um, that would inevitably lead them into a cul-de-sac. I I think that's what we're seeing play out now. In terms of what you talk about, the fracturing potentially of of unionist political formations, I suppose, because, I mean, if we go back, that's happened repeatedly. In the late 60s, you had the... Ulster Unionist hegemony, quite aristocratic, elitist formation. And then in the 70s, you had the Ulster Workers' Council strike and uh, in 1974 over the Sunningdale Agreement. Uh, And then obviously got the rise of Paisleyism and so on. And then the DUP emerged out of that. In, In what sense now do you see, is there a new crisis equivalent to that of a fracturing of the DUP's hegemony? And will it go, is your fear it will just end up going in in, th- in that more reactionary direction? Or do you see potential for more progressive political formations yeah. that could take leadership amongst 
Protestant working class communities? Um, I think it's going both ways at the minute. So at the start of the year, um, there was an opinion poll that was, was published um, and it you know, it forecasts you know, serious losses for the DUP at the next assembly election. Um, you know, some of it to the more aggressive, as I say, right wing TUV, but most of it actually to the, to the centrist liberal alliance party. Um, who many soft unionists who maybe found a home in the in the pro business DUP over the last five or ten years, but because of Brexit, um, because of their increasingly regressive attitude on you know issues around equality, you know their, their approach to you know marriage equality, their approach to abortion ref, um, reforms, their approach to even you know Irish language legislation is driving a number of people, an increasing number of people now from that soft unionist community into the centrist alliance party. Um, so the DUP are under pressure on both of those um, fronts. And, and as I say, I think it's been deeply regrettable uh, for wider society that they have decided to approach that by lurching to the right, um, by increasing the rhetoric around identity politics. Um, and that has been bad for wider society. Um, you know, when we looked at the Brexit debate uh, at the turn of the year, you know, the vast majority of people here support the protocol. You know, the vast majority of our elected representatives understand that, yes, we were opposed to Brexit, but now we have to move forward. The protocol offers some sort of limited protections and we have to make the best of it. You know, the business community understood that. And at the start of the year, I think Arlene Foster and the DU some within the DUP understood that. You know, they spoke publicly. Um, about now realising that it was reality. But when the graffiti went on the walls in the loyalist working class areas calling out Arlene Foster, you know, when the party started to fracture more internally into different camps, we then seen a DUP leadership, just as I said earlier, decide to lurch to the right. Um, and that they believe, I think, that the only way out of this electorally for them is by through crisis uh, and by whipping up all concerns around betrayal. You know, and that play into that false narrative about how you know, Sinn Féin or the Catholic um, community is somehow winning, you know, which is simply, it's, it's not based in reality at all. You know, you, you listen to the conversations over the last couple of days and it's so clear, you know, the, the, these socioeconomic issues that people face in these parts of Belfast, it doesn't matter what colour of, you know, you know, school jumper you were, the name of your church, your political persuasion, you know, the impact and the consequence of inequality, of social deprivation and poverty, it affects all of our communities. Um, and that's why we need a much more cohesive approach to this. Um, and we need to approach these issues collaboratively, holistically, um, and put need ahead of creed. And unfortunately, to date, the DUP have been unprepared to do that. Um, if the DUP hemorrhage in two different directions towards the centre and to their right, there is the prospect of Sinn Féin emerging as the biggest party in the north. They're already leading in the polls in the in the south, uh, the obviously main opposition party, and that would mean Michelle O'Neill becoming the first minister of the north. But equally, what will happen then is the very elements which have been manipulating anger in those these communities. Will will you know there will be these bigger insecurities and fears that they will be able to tap into. So, what I suppose is the strategy then for Sinn Fein? If if you do emerge as the biggest, if, if, as the main party in the north, uh, and people can see within the south the 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 ascent of Sinn Fein as well. To those Protestant working class communities, what would be the strategy to uh, combat the attempt by these extreme elements to manipulate those insecurities and fears? 
Well, again, I, I, I think there's different um, issues here to, to touch upon. I think the first thing and the most important thing at the minute is we need to see constructive and visionary unionist leadership. Um, you know, the, the cul-de-sac that unionism is currently in um, is not going to lead to a productive outcome for anybody. You know, we have, for example, a number of these loyalist demonstrations and protests planned for over the weekend, yet we can't get unionist leaders to stand up and say this should not happen. You know, these protests need to be cancelled. Um, you know, no matter what the rationale is behind any of this stuff, you know, the political arena is where this needs to be discussed um, and let's do that. You know, we need to also get real as well that, you know, 20 odd years after the Good Friday Agreement, we still have loyalist criminal gangs mm-hmm. operating in our community. You know, that must not be allowed to, to go on. We've had a ludicrous situation in recent weeks where Arlene Foster, leader of the DUP, won't meet with the chief constable, but she'll meet with the loyalist um, command of mm-hmm. paramilitaries. So too did Brandon Lewis, the, the, the British Secretary of State. It's farcical. Um, and, you know, this, this situation must not um, be allowed to go on any longer. We need to remove physical force unionism once and for all. We need to move forward with it, with our peace process. You know, we had the new decade, new um, agreement um, last year um, about a, a new basis for moving forward with power sharing, about you know Irish language legislation, and, and about moving forward into the next decade of um, of governance and doing it for all in our society and tackling some of those you know seemingly intractable socioeconomic problems. About investing in you know housing right across the city. You know we have a situation here not far from where these riots have been taking place. Where the DUP have been blocking the delivery of new homes through a fear that perhaps you know Catholic citizens might be you know top of the housing list to get them. That that just simply an unacceptable situation, um, for not just for here but for any society to, to be facing. Um, but certainly from our perspective, and look, if it's this assembly election or if it's the next assembly election, um, you know, if we become the the biggest party, you know, we have to we we need to to represent everybody that elects us and everybody who doesn't. Um, and that means that we need to follow our socioeconomic program of, of of working. And again, I think this is where the DUP have been out of step with the interests of their community. If you take educational underachievement, you know, there's a false narrative out there that educational underachievement is worse within um, you know Protestant working class communities. That that's not actually true. And it, again, it goes back to this point that it's it, it's it's bad across all the working class communities. And that's why over the years, Sinn Féin education ministers have increasingly moved. Um, you know, to do away with academic selection at age 11, for example, to put in place schemes that would help those um, young pupils from socially deprived backgrounds. The DUP were opposed to every single one of those initiatives simply on the basis that it was Sinn Féin proposing them. They were letting down their own communities. Um, and I think we need to move beyond that. We need to move beyond the green and orange politics and we need to get to a place that we're really tackling the issues at hand. You know, and that, that's what we will continue um, to do. Um, we need to show leadership. All of us stand together to, as I say, to, to ensure that physical force unionism is a thing of the past. And there's a rule too for the police in that, you know. And we, we've come to a time now, as I say, 20 odd years after the Good Friday Agreement, you know, these loyalist gangs need to be off our street. Um, people shouldn't be living in fear. Uh, and we need to be moving forward now in the next stage um, of the peace process. Very finally, how serious a threat is this to the peace process? How worried are you about how this could escalate? Well, I suppose it's a bit of a catch-22. And yes, look, when you look at these scenes and you see people terrified in their homes, uh, it's terrible. Uh, It shouldn't be happening. When you see, you know, young people fireballing on a bus and, you know, as I say, the attacks on the public service workers, you know, that's certainly not a place we want to be in. Uh, We we certainly shouldn't understand 
underestimated. But at the same time, our peace process and the Good Friday Agreement has withstood serious challenges. You know, Brexit's a much bigger challenge to our peace process um, than these disturbances. I don't think these disturbances are reflective of the overall um, community. Most people looking in on this are absolutely exasperated and frustrated. Um, you know, they want to move on to a better place, and these elements keep dragging us back. And as I said, that's where I think the responsibility now must fall on the police to move in and ensure these things, you know, don't um, develop into anything more sinister. Sean Byers is a member of the anti-sectarian trademark Belfast. He's very much rooted in the Labour movement. And I want to talk to him about what's happening in the communities where violence has erupted. I think there are three sort of overlapping dimensions to the current crisis. Um, So there's the immediate trigger or, or cause. There's a deeper crisis within unionism and there's the crisis of the northern state. Um, so we start with the first one. Um, and if I talk for too long, you can tell me to shut up. Uh, the main impetus, as far as I can see it, for the protests and the violence has come from the DUP's desperate attempts to cover up its own failings. So the DUP really is in trouble politically, and that's a result of its own miscalculations and its reckless behaviour, not just in the last year, uh, but in the last three, four, five years. So you've seen the party implicated in successive scandals. You've seen it being resistant to moderate reform. You've seen senior party figures using inflammatory rhetoric on a regular basis. And more recently, you've seen the party play a damaging role uh, at key moments in, in the COVID crisis, obstructing measures that, that really needed to be taken to, to save lives. Um, but of course, the DUP's mishandling of Brexit has been has been a big factor. Um, it's alienated a younger, more liberal, pro-EU constituency within unionism, and at the same time, it's given confidence to more militant voices, uh, both within the DUP's own ranks and outside of the party. So, if you're looking for a context to to the immediate sort of trigger, um, this is it. There's an assembly election scheduled for next year. Um, the Belfast Telegraph, one of the local newspapers, has published a poll recently, just last month, or I think it was February, and it shows that the DUP's vote is set to fall by nine points uh, to just 19%. And that would put it just a point ahead of the centrist uh, Liberal Alliance Party. The poll also shows that the DUP is losing support to the TUV, the traditional unionist voice, which is uh one of its hardline rivals um so you can see the the dup's miscalculations its drastic miscalculations playing out in this fashion in the fracturing of unionism in different directions now this wouldn't just represent a loss for the dup but it would see Sinn fein emerge as the biggest party in northern ireland um and michelle o'neill as the first minister uh, of northern ireland which represent a, a huge psychological blow to, to unionism as a whole, and obviously for which um, the DUP would take the blame. So by my reckoning, um, Arlene Foster and her allies, uh, supported by loyalist organisations, have turned to like, an old tried and tested tactic of stirring up tensions in order to consolidate their position. Um, and. I think they've used the Bobby Story funeral 
which happened nine months ago. And you know, there was some anger over it, but not to the levels that not the levels that he's seen in, in recent days. And uh, the excuse of frustration over the Northern Ireland Protocol as a means to an end. Um, and I think what you're seeing now is a part of a familiar cycle where the politicians of big house unionism uh, escalate their rhetoric and their language. They incite violence in, in working class areas. They, they march people up to the top of the hill and then they, they walk away and they leave them there. Um, that's, that's why they, the loyalists used to call Liam Paisley the Grand Old Duke of York for that reason. Um, and then what they do is they condemn the violence from their comfy homes uh, in the suburbs. Um, and you can look at key moments in the history of the Northern Ireland state going back 30 years, 50 years, 100 years where, where this has happened. Um, and all, as always, it's been residents, community workers, youth workers, some political representatives in fairness to them, uh, and faith organisations who are left struggling to keep a, keep a lid on things. So that, in my view, is the proximate immediate trigger for the crisis. But I think it's important to situate it within the, a much wider context and longer sort of view. Um, In terms of working class Protestant and Catholic communities where social conditions have deteriorated uh, during the COVID crisis, but also before that, what prospects has someone involved in the labour movement do you see of of building some form of common cause or or solidarity within those communities? And to what extent do events like this just 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 trash that possibility? Hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, yeah, the, the areas that bore the brunt of the violence, they suffer from the highest levels of poverty and social deprivation in Western Europe, um, high levels of unemployment, health inequalities, drug and alcohol abuse and acute mental health problems. And that's all linked to material conditions, but also the transgenerational trauma linked to the, the, the conflict. Um, uh, these challenges have been compounded by the impact of austerity, welfare reform, and now, as you say, like by the impact of, of COVID. Um, and all of this is stacked upon a collapse in the economic base. Northern Ireland's economy has been in structural decline for, for decades. Um, and this is set to continue. And the sort of neoliberal uh, model of peace building uh, hasn't resolved that um, uh, by any number of economic and social indicators. The North is, is one of the worst off regions in the UK. So it's, it's a huge uphill struggle for, for the labour movement. One of the key achievements of the labour movement, and it's a miracle, I suppose, that when you, when you look at it, is that despite 40 years of, of conflict, um, the trade union movement remained united. Um, they managed to stave off the threat of, of splits, um, particularly uh, from within the loyalist community. There were threats at different times of, of an, an Ulster TUC and, and so on. But they've managed to to keep the, the working class fairly 
united um and that's been through an emphasis on on bread and butter issues um and that that approach by the trade union movement has continued to this present day um the official trade union movement sees itself i suppose as a guarantor of of the good friday agreement as an unofficial uh informal guarantor of of the peace process um and that informs a lot of what they do um so as i said there's an emphasis on bread and butter issues um and in it's the rhetoric and an approach um the official trade union movement and leaders are very careful to say anything that's uh the to comment on on political events um it tends to be qualified by you know credit with criticism of of both sides of the house um and that's all geared towards keeping their membership united um right obviously like in 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 any uh society um whether it's britain ireland the us or, or whatever the trade union movement has a huge role to play in in organizing the the working class um and the you know that that has to be done primarily in the workplace but the the trade union movement has to be involved in in other struggles extra parliamentary struggles um relating to the day-to-day -day issues affecting people and we've seen that in the past you know with with relative success on issues such as water um the trade unions coordinated a campaign back in 2006 um to prevent uh, the introduction of of water charges now that was a huge victory when you look at um what's happening all across europe the privatization of water and it's it's transformation into a in the commodity but in in the north thanks to the trade union movement uh organizing a campaign with the full support of communities and they managed to to stave that up that off and, and that's been avoided until the the present day Another issue where trade unions have taken a lead is, is in housing. Um, so the public sector union uh, has had a campaign, a fairly successful campaign, to prevent the virtual privatisation of, of the Northern Ireland Housing Executive, which of course was one of the major achievements of the civil rights struggle. Uh, and uh, you know it's the, it's the central public housing uh, authority. So they managed to stave that off. And again, that was through mobilizing people in in communities um, against against those moves. Thank you for listening. I hope you agree that was a really fantastic range of voices, insights, and experiences. To keep this podcast and the channel going, your support on patreon.com is really appreciated. Or you can use the supporter function, which you can see in the podcast description do subscribe give us a five star rating and review if you want to help other people listen to this podcast and get the word out as ever lovely to be able to speak to you and we will speak to you soon
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.